Welcome, Quentin, to the World XP Podcast. This is episode number 12. Quentin is a prop for the New England Free Jacks. For those of you that have no idea what that means, I didn't either until about 30 seconds ago. So uh, the Free Jacks are a rugby team in the Major League Rugby. Um, They are, well, without COVID, would be in their third season uh, right now. And I think the the Free Jacks are an expansion team. and so, Quentin, if you could just provide a little bit of background on, on Major League Rugby and kind of set the stage for, for the discussion. Yeah, of course. Well, first off, you know, thanks for having me on. For sure. And I'm really excited to have our conversation. Um, kind of give like an overview of what the Free Jacks are and what the MLR is. Um, Major League Rugby just started three years ago in the U.S. And, you know, one of the things I find pretty funny when I tell people that I play professional rugby, they're like, oh, I didn't even know we had that. So goes to show that we still got a long way to come to be compared to, you know, NHL or NFL or whatever sport you follow. Um, the Free Jacks, they were an expansion team. They started back in 2019 where they had this exhibition season where we played in the Kara Cup. And, you know, having like a rich um, Irish history and culture in Boston, we decided to put together this exhibition season where we flew over all the top academy teams from Ireland so, you know, these big powerhouses of like Ulster, Connacht, Munster, and Leinster um, basically got our butts kicked for, you know, six months. But nonetheless, it was a great experience just to, for myself, experience what Boston was like a city and the people and what, you know, high-level rugby was. And with the conclusion of 2019, that's when we had our official inaugural season into the MLR where we joined. And unfortunately, I got cut short. We only were able to play, I think it was five out of the 16 games that we were supposed to play. So, you know, unfortunate, but it was, you know, very rewarding to see the fact that from all our hard work in the 2019, you know, exhibition season come to fruition in 2020. And I think that's something that's going to keep us all looking forward to 2021, hopefully when it starts up in February. Yeah, definitely. So you guys are, your season runs from from when is it a fall start into the into the spring so without covid we were supposed to i guess like report to boston uh november december mm-hmm. just because guys traveling from overseas and whatnot they're finishing up their seasons over there um but now that covid has kind of taken a toll on everything we pushed the season back into february and mm-hmm. it's gonna run all the way till august okay that makes sense so I want to take a step back before we get into to your story, just for more background for the listeners, sort of. Um, I know it works a little bit different than soccer as far as the overseas, people playing overseas and stuff. I was talking to um, one of my friends from, from UMW, and he was saying how guys play will come play in the U.S., and then they'll go play overseas, and then they'll kind of switch back and forth between between the seasons. So how, how does that kind of work with you guys if you're going to go play in New Zealand or Ireland and then – come back and play in the States. How does that sort of work between the clubs and how do they negotiate that between player and club and, and all that yeah. sort of stuff? So I think the one thing that's kind of different or like, you know, more manageable is that the MLR only cares about the MLR season. Mm-hmm. You know, they only care if their player can play during that, you know, time period. They understand that guys coming from overseas, like they have other obligations um, playing in different leagues, whether that be, you know, your top tier leagues in Europe or, you know, the minor 10 in New Zealand. So just like how you have, you know, sports, I have kind of been specified the certain seasons and whatnot. 
And you have to think also, well, for New Zealand, you know, Southern Hemisphere, mm -hmm. climate's completely different and whatnot. Hold sure. on a second. No worries. Sorry about that. All good. Got technical difficulties for some reason. Yeah. Computers blacked out, but um, so for example, like when I went to New Zealand, it was you know winter there, right? But it's kind of weird contrasting because you think, okay, well, what June to August, you're gonna think, okay, summer, just because that's what the U.S. has. Mm -hmm. But over there, that's when they have rugby. That's when they have you know winter and whatnot. So mm -hmm. I guess it's just the way that different countries have organized their sports and ironically not ironically but fortunately it's kind of just worked out where players can hop from country to country and make their living yeah i think it's the only sport maybe besides basketball where it's like that where the players will hop from team to team not in not including national teams obviously but where they're where they'll hop from team to team to team and the seasons are half the year instead of 10 months like most other sports um so that's a really interesting thing. You probably learn a ton, meet a ton of different people, learn different cultures and stuff. As we were talking before, I think you spent some time in New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah, it is. So when I joined the Free Jack in 2019, um, I guess I did enough for them to be like, okay, we want to see what else you can do. So they gave me a two weeks notice and they were like, pack your bags. We're going to send you to a club in New Zealand. Um, it's actually a very beautiful place called Sumner. And it was right outside of Christchurch down on the South Island. And basically we joined in their second part of the season. So basically got to be a part of their wrap up. And um, it's honestly just totally a different world down there. Everybody's so nice and welcoming and greeting. You know, they really cherish the sport. And it's mm -hmm. funny because when you think about New Zealand, you always think like rugby must be the national sport, but it's actually not. So that's one thing that I found particularly interesting, kind of surprising. Um, when I was there, though, like, it was funny just to kind of be a part of people that were played the sport their entire life, much like how you would probably have played soccer growing up. Yeah. And then we get there, and they're like, all right, well, how long have you been playing for? And I was like, oh, this is my third season, blah, blah, blah. And everybody's kind of just like, well, no, that's pretty interesting. We don't know if you're good or not. So I think it was definitely funny when I had my first practice, like, I was sweating beads because I was like, I better not drop a ball. I better not do anything stupid. Yeah. Because, you know, I came here to play and I want to be a bench warmer and kind of just waste my time in New Zealand not playing on the field, mm -hmm. but being like a practice dummy. But um, obviously things went really well and got a lot of good playing time and got to learn as much as I possibly could have and probably could have, you know, anywhere else. So very fortunate for that experience and very thankful for everybody that kind of took me in. And um, I think that's another testament to how, I guess, global the sport is. Mm -hmm. is when we went there, you know, we didn't have to worry about housing or anything like that. You got set up with somebody from the team mm -hmm. and basically like they sponsored you for like the rest of the season. So like when I got there, I was fortunate enough to live with the club president and his wife. And, you know, they just made it basically like a three month vacation. They're like, all right, whatever you need, blah, blah, blah. Like here's food, you know, just make yourself at home, but just make sure that you play well on Saturday. Yeah, that was like all they cared you about. You better play well. You got to go home yeah. to the club president. Exactly. <laughs> so pressure. Yeah, it was always awkward walking back into the house after like a loss or something. <laughs> and it would just be like a little idle, like idle silence and be like, I'm just going to go to my room, and like hang out for a quick minute. 
see what he's doing. But, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a grateful experience, and hopefully I'm back over there soon. Were a lot of the guys the same uh, – were a lot of the guys there the same – like, do they come over to the States to play, or, or is it just kind of random where people end up in their different seasons? So it's funny because obviously over there, like, your goal isn't to play in the MLR. Sure. Like, your goal is to play in the top leagues – you know, that's super rugby that's going over to Europe or France or wherever it may be and playing in those top tier leagues. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because when we came there, they were like, oh, you guys probably MLR. Well, that's funny because like, you know, they try to talk to this teammate or that teammate. And it was funny because when we had gotten there, there was actually a guy um, that played in my position. He was like, yeah, your team actually called me about coming up next year, blah, blah, blah. But I said, no, like I'm going to play in like the minor 10, mm-hmm. which was like the state provisional um, side down there that's like their league so that was funny but now actually coming into this season he signed with a team in New York so we'll be playing against each other after we'd spent you know summer together in New Zealand but that's awesome so that also shows a little bit the league is growing you guys are getting guys down from from New Zealand to, to, that want to play there which is a good thing thing only only increases the level of play which yeah well I mean the one thing that's been awesome is um there's been a lot of, I guess, guys that kind of come down from their peak. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, they're still regarded as legends on the rugby field. Guys yeah. like Mananu, who is one of the, like, you know, the highest regarded All Blacks to ever play uh, in New Zealand. He came over and spent the last season um, in San Diego. So just to kind of like, for me personally, like all of a sudden being like this uh, guy who all of a sudden fell into love with rugby and being like this star crazed guy of mm-hmm. this player, I was like, oh crap, like, I just, like, shake his hand after the game, like, don't do anything weird, blah, blah, blah. Because, I mean, it was, like, I'm on the same field as, like, Mananu. Yeah. And it was just – it was kind of, like, surreal, like, surreal to be, like, holy crap. Like, two years ago, like, I was watching this guy on YouTube, and, like, that dude is amazing. And mm-hmm. now I'm, like, right here patting him on the back and, like, a game. So, it's definitely interesting because I think it's very good, too, for the league because it's getting all that exposure. Yeah, definitely. We're talking. So you've been an athlete, different sports growing up and stuff, obviously. But have the pregame sort of like nerves or on the field been different when you're playing with guys like the one you just mentioned or or any of the other stars that you had seen? Is it a different sort of feeling than than the one that you would get before like a big high school game or or something like that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think one like wrestling is the other sport that I could probably compare it to. Mm-hmm. Um, just because like you're alone on the mat and everybody's watching you. Yeah. And I think it's different because, you know, here I am playing rugby, you know, at a professional level, quote unquote. And, you know, there's people watching, there's people watching on TV, blah, blah, blah. So it's definitely interesting. Cause it's like, you know, I want to go out there and perform, but at the same time, like I feel like as an American new to the game, like I don't really have room to make errors. So mm-hmm. I feel like you have a very slim window to prove yourself to be able to play against these guys. Because if not, you know, obviously, you know, MLR is a business at the end of the day and they're there to entertain people. And if you can't yeah. perform your job, you know, you can go find yourself doing something else. Yeah. Are, are a lot of other Americans or young American players, do they feel sort of the same way as sort of that pressure to, to prove themselves or they don't have any room for, for error? I, f- I feel like in soccer anyways, when you jump up to that next level, you, lots of players feel that that pressure to – you can't mess up at all because all of a sudden you're playing with guys who've been there for forever or they've been playing at that level for forever. And 
at least I've noticed sometimes it gets in it gets in people's heads and you see them play poorly and you know that they can play better, but they don't get the chance to prove it. Has, has that happened to you or have you noticed that with, with yourself or other guys? Well, I think fortunately for like myself and for, you know, my other American teammates, I think they've kind of felt similar, but I mm-hmm. think we've both been, or we've all been fortunate enough to kind of rise to the occasion and not really have these big blunders that set us back. Mm-hmm. But I know for a fact that, you know, other Americans are kind of thinking the same thing of, you know, how do I go out there and how do I outshine these players that have, you know, come from overseas and, you know, are given, you know, all the faith and trust and, you know, more game time and whatnot. But you're still going to have your Americans that are, you know, just outright athletes that have picked up the game very quickly and, you know, can play at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that's one thing that's kind of for an American player or speaking for myself, you know, I can't mm-hmm. say that for everybody else. There's always that pressure. And I say that pressure is probably the biggest pressure for me on game day is, you know, this is another opportunity for you to make yourself, you know, more trustful on the game. Definitely. So, you know, obviously don't do anything stupid. Don't mess up anything. Do you think that comes from your, I'll say, lack of playing experience or the fact that America, the, the U.S. is kind of new to the rugby game in general? Or both? Well, I think those go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for one, like when I played club rugby, like there wasn't any of these set plays or these special, you know, set pieces mm-hmm. that I had to memorize. Um, you know, it's kind of just go with the flow, you know, just run around in the corner, run around the corner and keep picking up the ball and keep trying to get yeah. far, as far as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got to Boston, it was like, all right, we're going to run this play. You're going to go here responsibility is this this is your job and I was like very like mentally overwhelmed because I was like this is not the game that I thought you know mm-hmm. I knew how to play so I'd say that's probably like my biggest setback um just the mental side of the game was you know understanding where I'm supposed to be when the ball is halfway on the other side of the field mm-hmm. you know where am I supposed to be moving to what am I supposed to be looking for yeah so I would say that probably and I think that goes with you know not having the exposure for you know Americans like, it's not like you can go out and just see rugby being played, you know, yeah. here and there. You think that's – is that the biggest difference between between you and, and the other guys? It's not so much physical. It's more the mental the mental side, like the tactical side. Yeah, I mean, I'd definitely say that. Just because, you know, when I was over in New Zealand, like, they always talked about how, you know, America's got the athletes. They have the infrastructure. They have, like, the knowledge of how to build these incredible – you know, specimens. Um, I mean, like you look at the NFL, you look at like college football, like yeah. those guys, they eat, sleep and, you know, breathe football and like strength conditioning and whatnot. Yeah. When I was over in New Zealand, like the professional team only had two days in the gym, which for me, like coming from America, I thought that was absurd. Yeah. That's not a lot. No. So that, that was the thing. I was like, all right, so like these guys are like, I don't know how they got their size. That means they're all natural or something. Like, I don't know what that was but the other fold of it was you know you're playing probably or no arguably the most physical game in the world your body needs time to recover yeah so you know without recovery obviously you know you're not gonna be able to perform on game day or you know be able to perform in practice let alone so it was interesting to talk to guys who came from like european clubs or you know we're doing sports science in new zealand and like mm-hmm. speaking to all the physios over there so you know, that was the interesting side of it because it was, for me, like, when I came up to Boston, like, I was considered small for my size. Like, I came up with, like, 220. Mm-hmm. And for a prop, 
your usual size is, you know, you're six foot, like 260 to 270, being able to get around the park and, you know, run and do all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Yeah. So 2019, like that whole season, like I put on 40 pounds and I can tell you it wasn't all muscle. Like a lot of it was fat and stuff. Yeah. So, but I mean, I credit that to spending probably, you know, three hours in the gym every day. Whereas over there, it's just a totally different world. That's a ton. So eventually are you going to try and get to get to one of these, these overseas leagues, whether it's Europe or New Zealand or wherever? Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent, that's the goal. I think right now it's kind of just, you know, as guys start to come over, hopefully we will get more exposure and I can somehow make my way over there. I mean, that's the dream and that's the goal. Well, that would be the ideal thing, wouldn't it? So I want to get back a little bit to how you got in, into rugby because we were talking before and obviously you only played for, for the three years. And so you're a, what, a wrestler, a football player, and lacrosse, I think, were the ones yeah. that you said. So mm-hmm. that was in high school. And then you were going into college for, for lacrosse. lacrosse. And what, what made you kind of make that switch? Or how did you end up going, stopping lacrosse and then saying, hey, I don't, maybe this is not for me? How, how did that kind of happen? Well, I think I did, like, the classic mistake of, you know, coming out of high school. I didn't really know where I wanted to go. Um, let me take that back. So, like, obviously, as a high schooler, I think, you know, a pretty common piece of advice told to you is choose a school that you would also enjoy academically and not just for sports. Yeah. So I made that mistake, and I went to a small D3 school um, in Virginia called Christopher Newport University for lacrosse. And I had torn my hamstring my senior year of high school. So I sat out most of my senior year, tried to get back into the second half of the season, kept like pulling it or whatever, tweaking it and whatnot. I showed up to CNU still with like a bum leg, basically tried to go through the fall preseason and like fall ball with like a bum hamstring, you know, like redid it, like retore it. And when I kind of like had this moment of like realization of like, okay, well, I'm not enjoying lacrosse. Like I'm not getting along with, you know, what I want to be doing. I can't even declare for my major um, just because it was such a small school. And like the accounting program there was, you know, very small and mm-hmm. finite to what you had available. I kind of just was like, all right, like I, I made the mistake of, you know, not choosing it academically. Mm-hmm. So that's when I transferred to Virginia Commonwealth university and had like a rough transition over there, you know, basically showed up this campus, had no friends over there. It was basically, you know, alone in this big campus with 40,000 students. Yeah. In the middle of a city, no less. Yeah. So I tried to figure out, you know, you know, first like a friend group, social life and whatnot. So I think I spent too much time trying to figure that out and obviously lacked that in studies. So Mm -hmm. pretty common mistake, I think, or, I want to believe um, pissed off my mom pretty badly. She sent me out to a boot camp with my uncle out in Colorado, you know, which praise him for taking me in and kind of whipped me back into shape. You know, mm-hmm. that was honestly the summer of hell. I worked three jobs to basically pay for my tuition coming back. Cause my mom was like, I'm not paying for your education if you're not going to take it seriously. And at that moment I was like, all right, well crap. And I got to figure out how I can work. Yeah. to make what was it like eight thousand dollars in three months mm-hmm. and I was like there's no way 
And my uncle was like, well, you can come out here in Colorado and like, you'll have good weather, but you'll be working every day. So you won't get to enjoy any of it, but you'll have your tuition when you come back. So I was like, why not? Went out there, basically, literally just worked. Like I didn't have any friends out there either. And when I came back to school, you know, things settled down, you know, made friends and blah, blah, blah. Got my grades back into shape. I enjoyed, you know, the scenery and, you know, getting away from life in Virginia and the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So I went back out to Colorado for a second summer. And obviously with like better grades and whatnot, I wasn't in boot camp. I was more of, you know, just come out here and experience a summer and work. Yeah. And I got hooked up with like a local landscaping crew um, just because it was one of the jobs I worked the previous summer. And the guys there were like, oh, we play on this, like this local club team. Um, it's more of a social thing. Like we think that you'd really enjoy it, blah, blah, blah. Plus you got the size and we need a prop. So um, basically I recruited to go be whatever it was. Like I had no idea what the position was, but I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. If there's beer involved, like I'll join. <laughs> and, you know, pretty much from there, the rest was history. Like the guys were phenomenal. Like some of them are still like my best friends I would consider today. And I just really loved being a part of like that tight knit culture. Mm -hmm. And um, that was just like, the rest was history from there. I was like, right, this is a sport for me. Like these people are great. And, you know, that's pretty much how I got involved. That's awesome. So I want to talk about a little bit about the hamstring because um, when, when you tore it, how, so like when you tore it, were you like making a cut or you were going to explode for like a sprint or something and then just kind of popped or how, what happened? It's funny. So like playing lacrosse, like you're clearing the ball mm -hmm. and, um, you know, obviously balls down and got a ground ball and just started to sprint. Mm -hmm. And I honestly thought I had gotten shot in the back of the leg and I just went down like a deer. Oh, and I, I had never like been injured and never broken a bone, never like done anything bad. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I was freaked out. I was like, Oh my God, like, I just tore my ACL, blah, blah, blah. Even though that's not where your ACL's at. <laughs> but you know, I goes to show how educated I was um, in physical therapy or whatever you want to call it. And yeah. So like I sat out for three months just trying to rehab it um, like a local PT mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, I kept pestering my coach. I was like, this is my senior year, blah, blah, blah. I'm kind of guilt tripping him into, like, you know, I'm good to go. Like, let me play. Yeah. And, you know, my fault of doing that because every time I went out there, I'd, like, pull it. Uh -huh. And it was just a continuous, you know, thing. Was it fully torn or did you – or was it – Just snapped partial. it right off the butt bone. So, did you ever go get – you? did you get, like, an MRI and, and, and all that stuff? Yeah, well? I got an MRI and, like – you know, did the whole nine yards. They're like, you can either have surgery, which will, you know, put you out for a year. Mm -hmm. And I'd already committed to seeing you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I can't miss my freshman year, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, I'll just, you know, let it heal back on its own. And in hindsight, I wish I probably had done the surgery because then I know, you know, I would have been forced to let it rehab fully. Yeah. If you had just rehabbed and not pestered your coach, would it have healed eventually? What did the doctor say or? Yeah. So he was like the typical time frame is probably six months, mm -hmm. but obviously six months from when I had torn it, I would have already probably been through, you know, what would that have been? October mm -hmm. at CNU. So I would yeah. have missed a big chunk of preseason and whatnot. Yeah. 
does it still bother you now? No. So fortunately, after I did that and quit lacrosse, I became like a gym rat that first year at VCU. Mm-hmm. And I was always like worried about snapping it. So I just do a bunch of hamstring workouts. <laughs> with a total meathead mentality. I would spend more time doing hamstrings than I would doing like, you know, bench press or like curls. <laughs> that's hilarious. Would it help to you long run? Oh, that's crazy. Anyone listening, don't mess with hamstring injuries. I promise yeah, you. You heard, it, you heard it from him. The professional athlete who tells you not to do it. You should listen. <laughs> um, so this, that summer of hell, as you called it, you went out with your, your uncle in Colorado and we were talking before, you said he had a crazy, crazy schedule that he was on. Did he just know people around the town that could get you odd jobs and, and that's how you did it? Or did you have to apply for, like, go out and send out a million applications and do all that stuff? No, so where he lives in Steamboat, it's a very small ski town. I've been and there. Like I've been there to ski. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, all right, yeah. So, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, yeah. although in the winter, that's probably jam-packed with, you know, tourists and everything mm-hmm. like that. In the summer, it's very different. It's a lot more, you know, local vibe. People come up for the weekend and whatnot. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like this giant, you know. I feel like Steamboat kind of turns into a big city in the winter. Yeah, a little um, bit. But even so, like, like Vail and some of the other places are definitely bigger. I didn't. I never yeah. got the super touristy vibe from Steamboat, even though we were there in the winter. But Yeah. Well, I mean, so he does real estate out there. And so, like, he's told me all these different crazy facts where it's, like, the population of the city, like, nearly halves from winter to summer just because everybody that's got the money, they'll move out there in the winter to experience their, you know, skiing and whatnot, and they'll mm-hmm. go back to wherever they came from for summer. So before I'd even gotten to Steamboat, like, all my jobs were already lined up. They're like, all right, you're going to be doing landscaping from, like, 6 a.m. to, you know, 3, and then from, like, 4 to probably – you know, 12 o'clock at night, you're going to be doing at the local restaurant. Mm-hmm. So my uncle had plenty of connections. And I think that was, you know, it's good, but it was also bad because then I was like, crap, like I don't have any downtime. Um, because it was funny because he was friends with all my bosses. Mm-hmm. So anytime like I would sneak off to go to the gym, like he would call my boss and he'd be like, hey, where's Quentin at? He'd like, is he still at work? And he'd be like, no, nah, like he told me he had like a doctor's appointment or something like that. So I can come home and just get yelled at. It was funny. But um, what was the question? I forgot. Talk myself into a circle. No, I mean, that was it, kind of how, how that summer went, how you ended up actually yeah. getting the jobs. Because I know if you go out there with no sorts of inroads and you have to apply to a million different places, you might not get hired. And then, but you ended yeah. up getting getting the tuition, which was, which was great. And yeah, what? so my uncle, he was a very – brilliant guy he made like this excel spreadsheet um he's basically like all right so every day you're expected to make a hundred dollars and save that hundred dollars and if you work this many days the rest of the summer you'll have your money mm-hmm. or the tuition that i needed and like i would come home one day and you like just have the laptop sitting on the counter like just already pulled up on the excel spreadsheet and like i would know that he'd be sitting around the corner like drinking coffee like waiting for me to see like how much I put into that Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And one day I walked in and I think I put in like $75 or whatever it was. And he was like, that's not a hundred. I was like, I know. He was like, why is that not a hundred? I was like, well, and 
I went to go get some food and blah, blah, blah. Like, I left, like, an hour early to go to the gym. And he just, like, didn't say anything and, like, just walked away. And I'm, like, I'm a person where it's, like, if I know that, like, I've kind of upset you, like, mm-hmm. that'll resonate with me more than, you know, being yelled at or reprimanded. Mm-hmm. So I was, like, crap. Like, I, like, he took a chance on, like, housing me out here and, like, you know, setting up all these connections with his friends and whatnot. So that was early, a big. How early in was that day that he did that to the summer? I think that was probably, honestly, I think, like, the first week, like, towards the end of the first week. <laughs> and that was when I was, like, all right, crap, like, this is actually going to be the summer of hell, and mm-hmm. I'm going to be working every day for God knows how long, until I make my $100. Did you but, get, did you eventually have, was there any downtime at all, even towards the end, or you were just working the whole way through? So, like, I would be able to, I guess – kind of like take like a Saturday or Sunday here or there mm-hmm. and you know I would go experience some of the stuff with my family like they would go do um like other visits like they would go to Vail just because my cousins were very um big into sports mm-hmm. so they would go there for like swim meets and I'll tag along and I'll come back and you know the next day I was working mm-hmm. so like those are kind of my highlights for that year yeah uh, but yeah so I think I spent more time in the gym than exploring Colorado that first summer I mean, once once you turned into a meathead after the hamstring injury, it's kind of you feel the need to get in there all the time, no matter no matter what you're doing. Yeah. I want to touch real quick on your mindset coming back from after, like during the preseason for lacrosse, and then going into the hell hell summer, and then coming out of it. Because for you, I think how hard was it for you to recover and then realize that you weren't fully recovered from from the injury after you like did you realize you tried to to push yourself too soon yeah I mean I think I knew that the entire summer and that second half of my senior season Mm because like I wouldn't be able to sprint probably more than 20 yards Mm -hmm. without having that nagly feeling in the back of my leg and you know when I went down to CNU like I told them that I had I was healed because for me like it was not more like, for me, like, I was more focused on making the squad and playing my freshman year. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was very ignorant to the fact of, you know, most freshmen going into a college sport, like, you're not going to get a lot of playing time. Yeah. Right? So, for me, like, I was like, that doesn't exist, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's my personal goal to get out there and play as a freshman and, you know, at least be on, like, the second line for defense and whatnot. And I think that got into my head a lot mm-hmm. more than I should have. And it definitely clouded my judgment mm-hmm. of, you know, obviously worrying about my body first because, you know, I, for me, like I have this mentality of, you know, if I'm still breathing, I can still go. Yeah. So. Did you have a kind of like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I don't really care. I can still kind of run. So I'm going to play anyways. Yeah. Every day. I think I would take like an Advil, go to practice and I'd be like, all right, let's see how far I can make it before I have to go, you know, hobble oh, off. But, yeah, I mean, I think I only made it into probably the first week of preseason before my coach caught on and was like, all right, what the hell are you doing? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you're supposed to be in shape. I mean, I was, but at the same time, it was like I couldn't finish the, you know, conditioning or whatever it was just because of my knee or my uh, hamstring. Yeah. That must have been not a fun conversation. No, it was a very bad one. So is that when you decided that that was enough for you? 
Yeah, because, I mean, I wasn't really, like, seeing eye-to-eye with a coach anyways. Mm-hmm. And I think having this whole experience with a hamstring and whatnot kind of solidified, you know, do I even want to play this anymore or am I falling out of love with the sport? Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a difficult time for me personally at seeing you. Um, yeah, I think that's like a culmination of all those factors where like, all right, you don't belong here and you don't know what you want yet. So you yeah. need to figure it out. So it was, and then that probably translated itself into that next fall or that next year at VCU, I would think. And you're yeah. I, like, did you feel sort of, I feel like it's, it's fairly normal at that age, still kind of lost. You don't really know what you're doing. You don't have your social circle established. You don't have the support. You're, you yeah. just stopped playing the thing that you'd been doing for however long and trying to figure out what you're doing and feel like it's natural for, for the grades. Well, I feel like I went through like a identity crisis, to be honest, because I was mm-hmm. like, all right. I'm a college athlete, I'm an athlete, blah, blah, blah. And then go and quit and now I'm like, all right, who am I? I don't have my day laid out for me. Mm-hmm. Apparently I have horrible time management and I have no <laughs> friends anymore. So that was like, you know, three big whammies back to back to back. I was like, all right, I need to you know, start chipping away at these things. Yeah, did you need that hell summer to kind of kick you back into gear? Do you think if you didn't have that, you would have continued on the path that you were? Well, I think I would have straightened myself out eventually. But I think it would have taken longer. Yeah. So definitely grateful for that summer. And I think mm-hmm. it definitely taught me a lot about, you know, myself, time management, and obviously, you know, what's more important at the end of the day. Yeah. How long did it take you until after the summer to like, where you were like, this was probably a good thing. I didn't like, even though I hated it then, like now I'm like, yeah, it's good that I did that. Did it take you a uh, while or was it like almost immediate after? I think it was like probably within the first couple of weeks because I was like, um, I was finally getting to experience like, all right, I'm making money, I'm saving it. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I'm doing like the right things, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to go back to VCU and pay off, you know, my tuition without having to take out a loan or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, it just felt like, all right, like this is healthy and this is kind of starting to, you know, forge my own path into what, you know, I want. So it didn't take long for me to understand that all of this was necessary and all that was, you know, needed. Yeah. That's good. That's a good mindset to have. I know a lot of people would just despise the experience. They would resent it and they wouldn't, it wouldn't get any better. Um, yeah. Well, that's probably part of the reason why you ended up being able to survive in a professional athletic environment because people that don't have the mindset wouldn't be able to survive in that. I don't think the hardships like, I was watching, um, you know, the All or Nothing documentary about Tottenham on uh, Amazon? About who? Tottenham Hotspur. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so, like, when you go watch their day, it's like, I think people have the misconception that it's like, oh, you just go play soccer and you get paid a, lo- paid a load of money and it's, and it's all fun and games and you just go to your games and you go party. It's like, those dudes are in there early in the morning for treatment and lift weightlifting and all the different stuff and then they have meetings tactics meetings like then they go train and then they come back and then they have to do like diet stuff and they're there for more than more than the eight hours that most people are so I was I was talking to one of my teammates who's like who was actually he played at the Tottenham Hotspur Academy when he was little now he's over he's over here now but he was like yeah the life is not easy at all I think going through something like your summer 
if you have aspirations for to like to go into any sort of real professional setting where you have to have where you have to be accountable, you need something like that to kind of yeah. teach you teach you the ropes. Well, I think it's funny because you know, obviously soccer over there it's a lot more you know, they have the financial resources for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, provide a player a healthy lifestyle and not have to worry about other stressors. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that's kind of funny about the MLR is that, you know, guys are really playing it for the love of the game. Mm-hmm. Guys are like, you know, not like these top tier superstars coming over. And it's just a totally different lifestyle. Um, because, I mean, a lot of people, I, well, there's one way to look at it. It's like, okay, you have a career and now you're going to add all this other pressure of trying to be a professional athlete yeah. while also having the same responsibilities. So it's literally like you take all the responsibilities, you know, your average day, and mm-hmm. let's go ahead and double it. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about, like, mental toughness and being more than just playing rugby, it's definitely true. Is, that what, is that what most of the guys are doing with, with MLR? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I would probably say 95% of that's true for anybody playing in MLR right now. Because, I mean – you spend what for this past season, for example, you spend, you know, December up till March, you got your rugby going. And while you're doing your rugby, you're also worrying about, you know, your finances and, Mm -hmm. you know, the health of like the health of yourself and have that all abruptly stop in March. What happens if you weren't working on your professional side as well? Are you gonna be able to find a job or are you going to be, you know, just hanging dry? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, good because it teaches you know a crucial lesson of anybody that's playing a professional sport is your professional career is going to end one day you know regardless that's a guarantee yeah and um i think that's you know a reinforcing factor of you have to keep developing yourself not only as a professional athlete but also as you know a person a human being mm-hmm. you know for that corporate world or whatever it is that you're going to do after definitely yeah that's a good point i think there's there's definitely two sides to that coin. The the one side of, well, if, if the sport is big enough, you can set yourself up for for life. But the other side of it, most that's not the case for most people. And so, definitely, it's well, it might not be easy. There's definitely a path to the future after after rugby or or whatever the sport is. Is the culture in in Boston flexible enough where like they understand like, hey, these guys have preseason or they have to go to this practice or maybe they'll be out of town for this game like they might miss work is have you noticed that in in Boston well I think it definitely depends on what your job is in the first place yeah um you know when I first got to Boston it's pretty hard to find a job because they'd be like all right well you know can you work full-time and at that time, I was like, well, I still even know like, what my rugby schedule is going to be like. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know what time my practice is. Am I going to be making it to these games? Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing that's kind of interesting about the MLR, or at least my experience thus far, is um, you never know what the roster is going to be, you know, week to week. Why is that? Just because, I mean, guys get injured or, you know, things happen and whatnot. You know, you might be a starter and you mm-hmm. might – get injured right so who's mm-hmm. gonna get called up is that guy that was third string is not gonna be the second string mm-hmm. and let's say that he's you know on schedule to work a job you know saturday or something and he's got all of a sudden now trying to find somebody to you know fill his gap yeah. for the work um i mean for example i worked at um a brewery i got it from a friend on a local club team up there in boston 
and she was, you know, a very nice lady. And she was like, yeah, I like rugby, blah, blah, blah. Like, I know um, you guys have a season coming up and, you know, I'll work with you guys as best as possible um, to do scheduling and whatnot. So, for example, like my day was wake up at 6 a.m., drive to the field, which is probably 45 minutes away, you know, do practice from 8 to about 10, mm-hmm. leave, spend another 45 minutes getting to, like, our chow hall and you know eat from probably be what 11 to 12 and then from 11 to 12 we would take a quick drive over to the gym that our team has you know you do like your afternoon lift Mm -hmm. so from 12 to 1 you're doing your lift and immediately after that you're doing like your you know overview of what practice was you're going over practice film or you're getting ready for the game coming up so from 1 to 2 that's your film time and whatnot and then 2 to 2.30 that was like your team meeting, mm-hmm. you know, what to expect for the week coming up, what to expect for practice tomorrow, stuff like that. Kind of just more like administrative discussions. Um, and then after that meeting was done, like I was taking a shower in the gym, throwing on my work uniform, and I was booking it to the bar in Boston, be there by like 3.30 or 4. And then, you know, obviously I'd work till about 11 p.m. And that was my day consistently. So it was interesting because – like, I had told my boss, yeah, I can work, you know, 40 hours. This is the schedule I can keep. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as games started to come up and guys got injured and I started finding myself having more playing time and whatnot, then mm-hmm. that's when it became, like, a big issue because I was like, all right, I keep scheduling you, but now all of a sudden you keep needing these times off. Like, it's not going to work. So yeah. I think there's you know, a constant battle of finding something that can also keep your dream alive. That yeah. makes sense. No, it does. So you're almost about to come to – if you were to go overseas, would it be enough? The income would be enough that you wouldn't have to kind of go through that, that sort yeah. of struggle. So yeah. do most players get to a point where they kind of have to pick between kind of like, all right, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. Let me just go find a real, real job. Or I'm really going to try and put my head down and give everything to rugby and try and make it overseas. Well, I mean, I think it's, there's a lot of different factors, obviously, that go into that you know, mm-hmm. age, your finances, can you, you know, keep trying to chip away at this dream or not? Mm-hmm. Is it realistic and obtainable? Um, but I think for the most part, when you do go overseas, you know, obviously it depends on, you know, what league you're playing in, but it is more financially affordable for you to only have to worry about rugby. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, with that being said, I kind of appreciate the fact that the MLR is, you know, this environment for, you know, the hard nosed kind of worker because it's, definitely reinforcing the fact of what I mentioned earlier of developing yourself on and off the field. Mm-hmm. How, how big of a difference is the, the playing level between MLR and, and the leagues overseas? I would say, so MITRE 10 in New Zealand is like your state provisional side. I would say MITRE 10 is probably like a stone's throw just above the MLR. Mm-hmm. Like I think the MLR is probably – without a doubt, the lowest professional league mm-hmm. so far. Obviously, you have, like, your Pro D2 in France, but that's still, I think, a step above the MLR. Um, Super Rugby is, you know, arguably the best competition to play in rugby in the world. Where is Super Rugby, or what is it? Super Rugby is, um, well, it was New Zealand, um, Australia, Africa. So Super Rugby, like, they had different teams from different continents coming and join. Mm-hmm. But now that, you know, COVID's hit and finances for rugby have kind of taken a hit, um, 
they've kind of, I guess, clustered together. But now it's like Australia and New Zealand will be together in mm-hmm. Super Rugby, I mm-hmm. guess, in some sort. It's kind of actually like an ongoing discussion right now. And then all the teams that are in Africa are going to join the leagues in Europe just because mm-hmm. proximity and everything like mm-hmm. that. So, Is there enough overlap between skill level that kind of the, the better players and MLR are able to hold their own with Super Rugby and, and some of the other leagues? Or like how far, how, how much of an overlap is it between, like how far down in MLR can you go before it's like, all right, this dude has no shot at playing overseas? Well, it, I think it's is it like only the top top in MLR, or like does it go a little bit further down than that? So you I mean you got to think like MLR is probably the lowest professional league, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll have guys that you know have played in Super Rugby, and then obviously don't make it for one reason or another, and they'll drop down to you know a more like a lesser comp, like a lesser standard. Like mm-hmm. for example a guy would play super rugby and he'll drop down to minor 10. Mm-hmm. He'll hang around a minor 10 and then he'll come and join the MLR and kind of do those two seasons back to back or whatnot. Um, and I think it's, I think it's like a true statement because if you look at teams now, like a majority of the talent um, from overseas will come from like minor 10 competitions or competition. Mm-hmm. And then you also that have, you know, big names that are starting to head over the hill and decline in their, you know, ability or, you know, strength. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, play. definitely. So you were talking earlier about uh, if if that dream to go play overseas is obtainable. So for you, how how obtainable is that? Do you think? Because that obviously you're saying that's the ideal goal of yours long term. But yeah, well, I mean, I could be totally full of myself and actually not have a chance. Like who knows? Like I don't know. But I think it's the fact of. Well, for one, like the Free Jacks, I guess they see enough in me to bring me back, mm-hmm. you know, so far the last two years and then sign me to another three-year deal. Mm-hmm. And so that would put me in Boston until 2023. And, you know, I think the fact that if I have progressed this much in such a short amount of time and I'm hanging with people that come from overseas and, you know, I'm, you know, doing well and I go to New Zealand and I have a good season over there, like – I think there's enough for me to kind of realize that there is a dream that is attainable. And then another consideration that I always have this battle with myself in my head is, so for a prop, which is basically like your lineman in the NFL. Mm-hmm. So scrummaging is considered like this dark art where you get better with experience and age just because. All, you, all the little tricks. Yeah, like, exactly. Like moving people's hands out of the way and all sorts of stuff. I'm, I would imagine. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, leveraging angles and how to move your weight and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So for me being like 24, like I'm still considered young mm-hmm. in my position because mm-hmm. you're not peaking until you're probably, you know, 28 around that area. Sure. So I still have, you know, age as a factor of, you know, positive for me. And I think that's something that's definitely keeping this dream alive. You know, if I was, you know, 26 or 27, I'd definitely be like, all right, it's not really mm-hmm. there anymore for me. Sure. I want to switch gears just a tad. With Have you noticed a difference in, in the professional guys that you play with now versus like the college athletes that you were with before and kind of how they train, how they take care of themselves? Like obviously not trying to push themselves through a hamstring injury anymore, but um, <laughs> yeah. 
have you noticed a difference in, in kind of the mentality and, and how they approach the game? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there's still a lot of similarities in there. Mm -hmm. um, college athlete, I think big difference would be, you know, how do you balance your day? I guess, you know, you're going to have different things going on. Um, but you also have that freedom to only worry about the game, you know, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It does, yeah. There's MLR, you know, guys would be coming from work and, you know, getting ready or whatever, what have you. So I think preparation-wise, too, it's a lot more individual. Like, it's your own responsibility in the MLR to, like, mm -hmm. eat healthy, take care of your body, speak up when, you know, you're feeling sore or whatever. Just because, you know, it's a totally different environment. Whereas, like, a college athlete, like, you have that infrastructure, you have those, you know, people there to monitor you know, how you're performing, what's your body acting like, you know, and they'll also be there to, I guess, you know, push you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, when I was at CNU, we would have our morning lifts and the lifting coach would walk us to the cafeteria and he'd watch what you eat mm -hmm. and be like, all right, that's good, bad, blah, blah, blah. Or for me, like he would tell me you need to eat more. So mm -hmm. he would go and get me like a bowl of cereal or whatever. He'd like eat this. I'm going to get you another omelet too. So I think that's, you know, definitely different in those aspects but mm -hmm. at the same time you know mentally wise you're still preparing for i guess a battle if you want to call it sure yeah i mean that's that's kind of what it is um yeah. have you noticed the difference between not that you were around cnu that long but have you is it, is it harder to kind of form bonds with with your teammates uh in the professional sense given some of you guys are probably in different walks of life whereas in college you all are kind of doing the same thing or is it or is it just different. I would say it's actually easier. It's a lot easier in the MLR because I think, one, you have that respect of, all right, here's a guy that's, you know, giving in his all. He's risking a lot to be here in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one, rugby is always known for having, like, a very tight-knit community that's always welcoming with open arms. Definitely. So I've never had an issue of, like, hopping on a team and, like, not being able to, you know, assimilate to the group or whatever, you know. Um Whereas when I was at CNU, obviously you're there for the same reason and you all have the same interests and whatnot. Right. Um, but still, like, but then again, I'd also have to say you're a young kid probably, so it's different. Mm -hmm. um, you're still going to have, like, your cliques and teams and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, for, like, the MLR or for the Free Jacks, obviously you're going to have guys with the same cultural background. Obviously you're going to get more – you know, tight, like faster versus yeah, someone Yeah, else. of course. That makes so. sense. How are the, uh, how are the fans? Do you guys get, or before COVID, were there, was it, did you guys get good turnouts or like how the facility so that you guys played at or kind of how did it that It definitely work? depends on where you're playing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like there's these little hotbeds all over the country where rugby is like a big thing locally. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> it's pretty funny. So we had like this kickoff for the season, basically for all the Northeastern teams because, you know, snow's still on the ground and whatnot. Right. And so they had this tournament in Las Vegas for the first three weeks, three weeks or two weeks. And um, basically, it was basically like a shotgun where all these teams had, you know, their first two games. So mm -hmm. you're bringing in teams from, obviously, Boston, New York to play guys out west. So there was nobody in the stands at Las Vegas, just because, I mean, I 
that was my first time being in Las Vegas. I didn't know if there was like a big rugby, you know, mm-hmm. culture there or not. And then it was funny because as soon as we left from Las Vegas, we went up to San Diego. Mm-hmm. San Diego, like a massive crowd, you know, probably like in the thousands, I would say at least. That's awesome. You know, it was just very different. Um, and it goes to show that there are all, like there are all these different hotbeds that are more popular than not. Mm-hmm. You go to Seattle, Seattle sold out their stadium. So that was a very cool experience because then it felt like, holy crap, like this is actually like a professional, you know, setting in a game is what it felt mm-hmm. like versus playing in Las Vegas where it was like, you know, oh, so-and-so's mom's here, like waving to her <laughs> in the stands and she like sat alone. But yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's growing. Um, I know Boston, we sold out our first home game. Unfortunately, we didn't get to play it because that's right when the governor made the call to cancel everything. Right. So. And I know when we had our Carrot Cup games, like, we always had a good crowd for that, too. What is so, the Carrot Cup? Huh? What's the Carrot Cup? So, Cara. It's not Cara. Carrot. <laughs> but uh, that was, like, the exhibition season when we put everything together with the Irish academies. Oh, okay. came over. Yeah. So, that was good because I was like, all right, now we know we can get fans out here. And now we know mm-hmm. people are interested in a professional team in Boston. So... Was it like to play in front of the – or was there a big adju- adjustment for you playing in front of that many fans like in Seattle or did you kind of just – were you in the mindset of you're like, I'm just going to go play? I mean, I think it's probably been said a thousand times before. Like when you're on the field, like you kind of get like these horse blinders on where you don't even realize that the stands are up there and people are screaming at you. Definitely. You're more focused on the people in front of you talking trash than anybody else. So mm-hmm. – I'd say it's pretty easy to be honest, like black it all out. That's cool. So I think we've gone for an hour, almost an hour. Um, your future plans, obviously you want to play overseas. So wish you the best of luck with that. Do you have any last sort of tidbits or pieces of advice for anyone who's trying to make their way in into the rugby game? Uh, I mean, I've only been playing for a couple of years, so I don't really you know, know too much, but I would say, Obviously, that the league's growing, and it's, I think it's going to be here for a long haul. And I hope and pray to God that you start to see the MLR grow to one of these top-tier competitions like they do overseas. Yeah, hopefully. I think it would be good to get some more, some more flavor yeah. into American culture. Not that we're lacking in flavor, but another one wouldn't be so bad. No. Uh, where can people find uh, the Free Jacks on, online? So, Definitely, we've got all platforms of social media, you know, Instagram, Twitter. Um, just go type in New England Free Jacks. And then if you go online, it's freejacks.com. And, you know, plenty of information there for anybody who's interested. Sounds good. And the season starts, the next season starts, you said when, is it this coming November? March. Or March. March, March 20th is the first games that you'll start to see. March 20th, you heard it here first. Good luck, Quentin. Really appreciate having you on. Uh, it's been a it's been a great conversation for sure. Likewise, thanks for having me on. For sure. Bye everybody. See you.